Coming to you from New York City, this is the Sea Change Podcast, and I am your host, Ellen Mahoney. Welcome, everybody, to season three. This is an interesting time to launch season three. I was preparing for the first part of the season to focus on community healing, and then Ukraine was invaded. And a lot of the themes are uh, continue to be relevant, to be honest with you, but there, there does seem to be a greater sense of urgency. And so today we start off season three by speaking with Doug Walker about how do we respond to crisis? How do we take care of ourselves and our community as we try and create a sense of normalcy and safety for our young people? You may know him from his work with Council of International Schools. He's helped countless schools around the world become more trauma-informed, and heal in the aftermath of a crisis. I often think about his work that he did in the United States after Hurricane Katrina, where he created the largest mental health program for school children who were suffering from the, the impacts of the hurricane there. But he's also worked with communities in Fukushima after the uh, earthquake and tsunami there, and he's worked with the State Department. So he gets around and he's, he's supported a lot of communities who are in the middle or the aftermath of a, of a crisis. So it just seemed appropriate to start this season with our conversation with Doug. Just a little word to the community, though, before we do that. I just want to say that I know that everyone is so tired and emotionally depleted, trying your very best to create a positive school experience for your kids after three years of constant change and uncertainty, and that this crisis, this war is a huge thing to now have to to navigate. And the international school community being what it is, we have so many connections, personal connections with people that we love and who we've worked with and worked for in areas that are impacted by this war. And so I know that every day you're you're looking at the news and, and your heart breaks. My heart breaks too. It's been just a really sad and scary couple of weeks. And I just want to say that out loud that I see that we have to take care of each other and we have to take care of ourselves. And I'm going to remind you as I remind myself that this is most likely another marathon. And so let's try and sustain our support by caring for ourselves and practicing regulating our emotions and checking in on each other in a genuine way and creating space and time for ourselves so that we have the energy and the strength to protect our community and care for our community. It's something that we needed to be we need to be reminded of. It's something that I need to be reminded of, to be honest with you. And so I, I'm hoping that this is a good reminder for all of you. The other thing I wanted to say is that I think that from what I've seen, the response to this war from our community has been tremendous. It's been so compassionate. And despite our fatigue, so many people creating resources and supports, safe spaces for our communities who are impacted, welcoming families coming from uh, Moscow and Ukraine and making sure that they have a place to go to school and some sort of semblance of normalcy for our seniors to graduate for their last year of school, you know, collecting donations and 
I know family members who are on their way right now driving to Poland to support all the people fleeing Russia and Ukraine. And it's just, it's tremendous. And, you know, I think we can be really hard on ourselves as a community. Um, We want to do better. We have really been thinking about the ways that we've, I have to say, I think we, we think a lot about the ways that we failed our communities, you know, through institutional prejudice and some of our colonial roots in our international schools, historical abuse. You know, we've been focusing on that for several years and we still have a lot of work to do in that area. And at the same time, there are these amazing examples of compassion and kindness. And this week I am choosing to really focus on that. And it makes me continue to ask myself this question, Who are we as a community at our very best? And by our very best, what I mean is when we are truly living our values, when we are actually through our actions being global citizens, whether it is, you know, raising awareness about the reports of Africans and Indians who are trying to leave Ukraine and getting pushed back, whether it is speaking out about how to be kind and inclusive to our Russian students in our communities, whether it is raising the awareness about other crises that are happening in other parts of the world that might be getting less attention. This is also the best that we can be by being inclusive, by being compassionate, by doing whatever we need to do to keep our community safe and protected and secure. And I'm seeing examples of that Every single day, it's truly inspiring. And this is a great example of how we have the opportunity to create a community that truly believes in belonging and compassion. And so I wanted to say that out loud. It's something that I'm holding on to to give myself hope. It's a way for me to also say thank you to all of you who have been giving back to the community. It means so much. It means so much to me personally and and professionally. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep working together in order to create, honestly, a better world, the world that we would like to be living in. So I just want to say thank you and let's hold on to that hope and let's be the best that we can be. Let's, Let's live our values. And with that said, I am now going to introduce you to our speaker, Doug Walker. Uh, He's got lots of really helpful information for us, and I think you're going to find it quite appropriate for the times we are living in. Hi, Doug. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Ellen. Thanks for inviting me. I wanted to get started just to give everyone a little bit of context about your really rich background in supporting communities through and after crises. You've worked, you know, in New Orleans after Katrina, you've worked with communities in Fukushima. Can you just help us understand how you got involved in this kind of work? It's been, uh, like I said, quite a rich experience, it seems. Yeah. So um, after um, schooling, I entered into some fellowships that focused primarily on trauma. Uh, One was in hospitals. And so I worked with families and children who experienced very traumatic things by way of injury and accidents and things like that. I also looked at the impact of trauma on young minds, uh, infants, actually, early in my career. I was able to parlay that, I guess, into a a larger program when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in 2005, and I created what's called Project Florida Lee, which is still in existence today. It's a program for students exposed now primarily to, sadly, community violence 
So we provide evidence-based practice across 65 schools. And from there, I jumped into the international school community, having provided similar trainings and consultation to schools all over the world. I've, I've spoke to school communities in 25 different countries over the past 14 years. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and I mean, Doug, at the beginning of COVID, uh, when it first hit, we were doing a little bit of work together with the Council of International Schools. And I'd say that you and Suzanne Anderson, who I've, who I've also interviewed on this podcast, have really helped me understand what to prepare for and how to support communities. So I like thank you so much for everything you've done for our little community of international schools. Yeah. So you mentioned the Fleur de Lis program, and I'm really interested in that program. It's, I think, the like the largest mental health-based program for New Orleans. And as you said, you created it to support young people who are struggling in the aftermath of Katrina. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about all the different kinds of crises international schools face, there's similarities and differences, of course, but our international schools face conflict and natural disasters. The whole world is dealing with COVID. From your experience in the fleur-de-lis program, what are some insights looking back now that you think are useful to think about today for international Mm -hmm. schools? Yeah, I I first think of systems. And so dividing it up between, say, leadership, faculty, teachers, and the students. I have to admit that early on, we focused primarily on on kids, um, getting kids back into school, helping them regulate their emotions, helping them with grief, trauma, and loss. A lot of children lost their homes, lost their pets. And we had more immediate type of trauma-focused evidence-based practices where we would do groups with kids to help process that experience. We didn't do much originally for the teachers, and I think uh, we fell short there. Kids are only going to do as well as the teachers, and there's so much pressure put on teachers from all directions that it's difficult to find space to care for them. That's something that we've improved on over, say, the past 10 years. The last is administration. And like the teachers, uh, the school as a whole won't be as healthy uh, unless or won't be healthy unless the administration is. And the messaging that comes from administration is important around creating a sense of safety, calm, et cetera. I think that for administrators, one of my lessons learned is that as you get higher up, so to speak, there are less people to talk to. Heads of school, for instance, there's there's not a lot of people that get you and understand your experiences in HOS. So I think it can be a very lonely place. And I have spent some of my time you know, over the past you know, 14 years working with heads of school because they are in such a unique position. Yeah, absolutely. I think our heads of schools have just really privately struggled, you know, just trying to keep everyone else calm and keeping things moving forward. It's just been, it's been such a struggle. When you mentioned that, you know, looking back, you know, you would have liked to have had more focus on the teachers as well, and that the students will only do as well as the teachers are doing. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely a tenant that I think about and build upon in my work all the time. But I'm wondering what what happened that made you have that realization when you were, you know, starting to focus when you when your main focus was on students, and then you realized, okay, the teachers need this support. What what happened that that changed that perspective for you? Yeah, um, in looking back, we had many teachers that um, just didn't have the skills, or were taught the skills, or had the the support to manage classrooms. They had their own stuff going on. So at the time, you know. To, 
they had no break. So during their scheduling period here in the States or lunch, they were calling a contractor to help to, or their insurance company or, you know, so they were managing all the other things. If we translate that to today, it doesn't change when there's man-made or natural disasters, armed conflict, and teachers are impacted, they have their own lives to manage. And so we weren't very efficient in finding not only what to bring to them, but how to bring to them. So where do you find the time for teachers to be able to have the space to either learn the skills or feel supported or reinforced? Because there's only so much time in the day, and that continues to be a challenge. I'm not saying it's easy. There are some unique ways uh, to go about that, but you have to rely on the school culture and the relationships that are already built prior to these disasters, these types of disasters happening. That's why, you know, these concepts of um, pre-disaster planning is important. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which really became obvious, I think a couple of years ago. And so when you're thinking about how important it is, how much is on a teacher's plate when the problem that the children are facing is the same problem that adults are facing? You've said before in a previous conversation about how you want to be careful not to make this kind of support an add-on. Can you tell me more about that? And just trying to think about kind of useful advice for schools who are still trying to really address this prolonged stress in a way that's mm-hmm. holistic and healthy for everyone. Yeah. yeah, I think that for teachers, if you can fit what you've learned into a curriculum, uh, that's helpful. So we always move to thinking about emotional regulation. And so at a higher level, we may think of it in terms of what we call cognitive behavioral therapy or how our thoughts impact how we feel and how we behave or how our body feels. I think that even what we call psychoeducation for teachers is important. And that's normally our first step is to let them know, hey, you're not crazy. This is this is a normal response to a very insane situation. And it's no wonder that you're not sleeping. Here's some advice on that. It's no wonder that you're maybe coping poorly with with alcohol. We can help you with that. And so to know that their experiences are not unique and that they're not crazy is important. How they translate that into this into the classroom is is being a good model and to take time for themselves. You know, over the over the past three years, I've um, become a little bit irreverent around this idea of self care, and it's time for another conversation. In some ways, I feel that we've exhausted our toolbox with regards to self-care. I think people know, yes, don't eat too much, don't drink too much, get exercise. What we haven't capitalized on enough, I think, is this peer-on-peer support. Mm. So in bringing people together to be able to check on them. So to really come to a classroom and ask uh, a teacher, how are you doing today? And not accept okay or fine for an answer. And maybe not in front of the class, but, you know, during coffee or tea or whatever. I think there's a whole other level of care that needs to be developed around peer-on-peer support. Like HOSs, teachers know teachers best. They know how things work. They know the culture. And so I think there's some good work to be done there. Not to take away this idea of taking care of ourselves. I mean, all those things need to happen. But I think if we leverage this idea of connectivity, it's a real important and Ellen, to look back at what we call best practices, if we yeah. look at what the literature says around how we respond to these types of crises, be it man-made or natural, the five tenets, the basic tenets for any good program 
that's out there right now being trained and adopted falls under this idea of creating a sense of safety, which means just that it could be a blanket, it could be a, could be a bottle of water, but having a sense of safety is important to establish some level of mental wellness or at least balance. The second one is calm. So that's emotional regulation. It could be breathing. It could be prayer. It could be lots of different things. It could be in the messaging too. Back to administration. If, if administration is not messaging a sense of safety and, uh, and using a tone of calm in their messaging, they're likely stirring things up a bit. The third tenet is connectedness. And that's what I'm talking about here is doubling down on being together. The fourth, which for some situations is difficult to find a society of both self and community efficacy, this, this, fat, this idea that we can rebuild again, we can be better than. If you look at the events in the last 24 hours, this might be a little out of reach right now. The last and fifth is not, and, and I don't think ever will be, and that's hope. And for the human experience, it's hope that anchors all of us. Uh, so those five things I think are important when you look at programming designed to stabilize mental health and wellness during crises like these. Yeah, that's so helpful to think about both in the context of COVID and and this stage that we're in with COVID, but also for what our communities are facing in Ukraine. So that's so helpful. You know, you, you talked about connectedness and one of the things that I can't remember if you told me to keep an eye on this, or, or maybe it was some some other brilliant person that helped me out thinking through all of this a couple of years ago. But I remember being told to watch out for tears in sort of the social fabric of communities so that, and I, I definitely remember learning about this with trauma work, but that sometimes our members of our community who normally would be very collegial might start to compare each other's suffering and then you know start to build some resentment and then conflict gets created. And I've definitely seen this across international schools. There are also sort of systemic issues that have created rifts where you have local faculty and local families and, you know, the so-called expat Mm -hmm. faculty, and they often have different packages and different resources and different access to safety and security. Mm -hmm. And so there, you know, sometimes we see these rifts happen, whether it's an insensitivity yeah. to what other people are going through or an anger or resentment, you know, towards others. So is that something that you see? And what do we do about that as a community? Yeah, it's difficult. You know, those disparities create, as you say, tears, but cracks that you often don't see until what I call a pressure test. Mm-hmm. And this is a pressure test. And so all these things come to bear and most of it is, is difficult to predict. I say that in my trainings, probably one of my first sentences is that every every disaster, man-made or natural, has its own signature. They're so complex. And no matter how much you prepare, there's always going to be twists and turns in such a unique situation that only best practice combined with, with knowledge of the culture, particularly school or host country, will make any implementation of any type of program or intervention work. And so these pressure tests you know, bring to light things that likely you probably need to circle back and fix when, you know, bookmark, come back if you can to try to repair those tears. And, you know, you would hope that those are changeable and they're not permanent where it just really tears down the school culture. 
Yeah, that's really helpful. And so now, now when we're thinking about COVID, a lot of our schools, of course, every country is different. Everyone has experienced COVID differently. Some of the schools that I work with in the Middle East and in Asia are the students are just starting to come back to school for the first time in two years on any kind of consistent basis. And to be honest, they're going back to more or less school as usual. There's definitely a greater sensitivity around the social and emotional needs of students, of course, and there is more supports available. And I think everyone is much more knowledgeable now about the social and emotional development that we really have to keep in mind. But still, I think people are still really looking for I think the first thing is just trying to understand what they're seeing in front of them. So for to give you an example, I think a lot of schools are seeing a couple of things happen with their students. One is you're seeing higher instances of children hurting themselves, doing, you know, self-harm and that sort of thing. And then we're also seeing an increase in just sort of behavioral issues that you might see at an age two years earlier, if that makes sense. So eighth graders are acting like mm-hmm. sixth graders and there's, you know, which makes sense to me from a developmental perspective, but I'm wondering what, what kind of insights do you have around that? And, and what do we do? How do we respond to that? So first of all, acknowledging the developmental approach to things. So your high schoolers are going to come in, you know, different than your, um, your younger ones. Let's start with the high schoolers. You mentioned that the older ones, you know, what we call non-suicidal self-injury and NSSI is, is, is common, sadly, in a poor coping mechanism in the face of, of stress and, and sometimes traumatic events. And if you look at the isolation that these kids have experienced, uh, they haven't had the ability to, to work with each other in real time and in real space to support or learn from other individuals, be it teachers, coaches, how to to regulate their emotion. They go right to in the cutting or burning. And, and so we would hope that over time, um, these individuals would be able to, these students would be able to pull back and be able to learn how to, to regulate or cope in, in more healthier ways, certainly. Even prior to COVID-19, uh, non-suicidal self-injury has been always on the top of people's list because it's it's so common. Uh, there are some good, some very fine resources for those types of programs if people are interested. And I could throw those to you after our, our talk today. If we look at the younger kids, they needed more supervision and had less of it, if you look at that, at that way. And so if it was a TV, if it was a, a monitor, uh, a game, they had the opportunity to regulate really on their own which really didn't have any social pressure. So tantrums, saying no. And parents, and, and this is no slight against us parents, is that we didn't. We were trying to get things done as well, oftentimes working in the next room. And so this idea of limit setting and mastery comes to mind. You know, limit setting and, and, and consequences and the things that parents provide or schools or limits are ladders to mastery. So I set a limit. You're able to do that, fall within that limit, and then I give you something higher. My example is that no one hands tosses the keys to a, a 16-year-old here in the U.S. unless they've went through you know several of the things, including probably when they were four, being able to play in the front yard. Right. So, right. so that's what limit setting is about. And if you're you don't have the structure around you for rules, expectations, then kids are looking so much for that. And kids can become out of control 
trying to seek that. Please put some limits on me. Back to the teacher, back to the classroom situation, I would caution everyone to look at the behavior as what it is, be it inattention, overactivity, it could be being disrespectful as something much deeper. And we use this term in in trauma work, but it, it reigns true for all types of challenges in mental health is don't ask what's wrong with you, ask what happened to you. So what's driving that behavior now could be several things. It could be this idea of emotional or parental neglect, maybe not deliberate, but parents just trying to get things done, maybe working two or three jobs to keep the family afloat uh, or the family business. So don't be quick to say that child's bad. Uh, he's a discipline problem. They have attention deficit disorder. They're depressed. Go behind that and ask really what's happened to them. And that'll make sense. And then you work towards some type of intervention that will hopefully benefit them and kind of bring them back in line. Yeah, that's so, that's such a good reframing of how we might understand our students right now. And it, and it actually makes me think of your peer-to-peer work as well for adults. Just if someone is short with you at, at this moment right now where people are under so much stress um, or if they're reluctant to collaborate or you know, some sort of behavior among adults that might be really getting in the way of the community trying to heal itself and get back together. Maybe maybe right now is a, a good time to kind of show each other a little grace and ask each other, how are you really doing? Yeah, we yeah. all have stuff. We all have stuff and we bring it to work. And some of that stuff is in the moment. Some of that stuff is historical. So we don't know what people come to the table with or come to our school with. Mm -hmm. And those histories, it could be trauma history. It could be other types of experience that make them a little bit more vulnerable that day. And Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to put out an idea around this concept of resilience, like other types of terms, it's called semantic bleaching. I don't know really what resilience is anymore because it's been used so much. What I do know is it can be reinforced, you know, through types of things like social emotional learning programs, that's the stuff that people teach around problem solving, managing emotions. But resilience is not a constant. Ellen, you and I could show up at work one day, you know, perfectly ourselves and, you know, with all the fortitude and grit that, you know, we come with every day and we get a text, we get a phone call, we see a a banner on on, on a news brief things change, right? And so to your point is that people aren't always themselves and not always resilient. And you have to kind of go past that and really ask, you know, what's going on and hopefully have enough trust, understanding and and empathy to be able to take the time to listen and and as best you can support them in that moment. Absolutely. Also, I love this term, semantic bleaching. Semantic bleaching. (laughs) Put it out there. Yeah. So good because I mean, yes, resilience. It's like, oh, there's a whole long list. Uh, Trauma informed. Trauma. uh, Yeah. Organic. Organic is a good one. Mm -hmm. Sustainable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. All bleached. (laughs) My husband often will joke like, if we were playing a drinking game, if you could hear me on calls, and he's like, oh, efficacy one more time, you know, (laughs) resilience, (laughs) drink again. He works in finance and he knows all of the lingo now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I try so much not like I need to find a synonym for, you know, so that's why I use fortitude, you know, instead of, instead of, instead of this idea of resilience, you know? So uh, we can laugh at ourselves. Certainly at least we've got that too. If there was a sixth amongst 
safety, calm, connectedness, self, and community efficacy, and hope. If I would add a six, it would be humor. So that makes sense. And humor also helps us feel connected to each other. So it goes back to one of those principles. You actually mentioned in the way you phrase something, you said stress and trauma, and you didn't conflate the two. And I just thought maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about the difference between trauma and stress. Sometimes I hear the word trauma used so generally, and it's almost difficult to talk about because you never want to minimize someone's experiences. But for me personally, I feel like we need to understand the difference between trauma, capital T, and stressors in our lives that are frustrating and concerning and can cause distress, but are not trauma, just so we can then be better able to provide the appropriate care to the person that's experiencing whatever they're experiencing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so I describe it on a continuum. So on the left-hand side, visually, you'd see stress. On the right side, you see something that's traumatic. You know, stress is, can be good stress or bad stress. And so we can experience the same stress if you go to a wedding or a funeral. You know, one's bad or sad and one's usually happy, but we have the same level of stress. Vacations are stressful in a good way. And so we ease up into this idea of traumatic. Now, child traumatic stress, we would consider all the factors, which would primarily include the fear or the, the knowledge or the understanding that death is going to happen or, or, or harm to themselves or other people. So if we look back historically, the, the model of adult PTSD was built more around trauma to yourself that you're going to die in, in, out of wartime. If you look, look at children, well, they're attached, right? So it's around attachment. And so the fear that mom or dad are going to die, that their dog's going to die. And so we look and we have measures to look at behavior change based on traumatic experience. You know, here in my office where I sit, you know, doing trauma assessments uh, are common because it's it's part of anyone's picture. I don't think there's too many people that would step forward and say nothing traumatic has ever happened to me. But we have to remember that it has to significantly impact a person's ability to function in the world. So if there's a bottom line to the difference between, say, stress and trauma, trauma is that it can leave people literally frozen. I have a slide that I use in many of my keynotes that is a survey of a school out of Asia, an international school. And we did kind of a word cloud above this continuum where stress was on the left and trauma was on the right. And you see things like dead center was like um, parent pressure for grades on the far right side where trauma would occur would be bullying, bullying the strong, abuse, formal physical abuse, sexual abuse, safeguarding issues. And on the left-hand side, you know, what stressful was like um, language proficiency, those types of things. So they, these students were able to place it on the continuum. And they, in, in doing that, acknowledged that in their life, some things are truly traumatic, like abuse and neglect. And on the left-hand side, things were more stressful. Now, that's not to say that you had enough, enough stressful events, your life could, could come to a stop as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, just It's interesting to have the kids actually place their experiences. Mm-hmm. So telling too. So one of the questions I, I get asked a lot, and I think about a lot, I have really a lot of empathy for folks in the situation, which is how do I create that sense of safety and calm and connectedness 
for our students when I don't feel safe and I don't feel calm. And I'm thinking like, like really just practical suggestions. And right now the people I have in mind are people in certain countries that have just where the COVID regulations constantly change and people have been very sick and it's been really exhausting. And I think, you know, we're seeing really high levels of burnout. And so the teachers and leaders care very much about their students and they're kind of depleted at the same time, all the way to a more frightening example of our communities in Ukraine Mm -hmm. who are in Kiev right now in safe havens, in shelters, trying to help the kids feel as safe as possible, you know, with missiles being launched into their capital. So any practical advice that they can do just to help them get through the moment to moment? Yeah. I mean, what's familiar and what's ritual comes to mind. I always look in responding to these events is finding where people gather and providing support there, not recreating the wheel, but finding that space that where people can check in with each other. So ritual is It could be the morning announcements. It could be a song. It could be games. Those things that bind people together and acknowledge that they're part of something bigger than themselves. And we forget about the role that schools have in all people's lives that, you know, we're connected. We wear that or have worn that uniform because it means something, that they're connected to something bigger than themselves. And I think schools that leverage that whether it's a legacy around motto or mascot, I think schools can rely on their own legacy and rituals and culture, really, to navigate these things. Before we close out the podcast interview, Doug, I was wondering if you have a story that you can tell us about an example of a moment doesn't have to be huge, but of a moment where a community or members of the community were able to find strength, practice their resilience after a difficult time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this idea of gathering has always been on the top of my list. And uh, I responded to the Fort McMurray wildfires in, in Northern Alberta, probably was it four or five years ago. And I was up there and we were kind of talking about what the community wants to do. So I had come along with best practices, but how you apply them is always different. And uh, they said, you know, it's it was cold. It was probably October into December. They said, well, we're gonna have we're gonna have a turkey dinner. I said, okay, because yeah, we're gonna have a turkey dinner. People will come, and uh, we'll talk about these things. You know, we'll talk about what we call psychoeducation. Let's talk about how people are sleeping. Let's talk about how how they're managing their kids' education now that they're back in school. And that worked extremely well because it was a natural setting and uh, people were breaking bread, right? Which is a classic thing. But something that happened afterwards, and this is important for people listening, is that it wasn't so much also the dinner and the information and and the togetherness. We were able to identify people who needed a higher level of care by those who stayed later for coffee and dessert. Now, the dessert was good, but they lingered. They lingered. It was a natural selection process where these groups, you know, people would slowly leave and they would be left with maybe seven or eight people. And it was a natural selection of, hey, you know what? You know, Mrs. Smith needs to talk a little bit more because her situation's so dire or different. Mm -hmm. And so 
that was a nice, that, that was a really, we happened upon it, a really natural way, uh, a very empathetic way to find people the help that they need. In this case, higher level of care, like maybe seeing a mental health professional like myself. So I think that, you know, those types of opportunities where people can gather is always a good thing. Yeah, I love that. And I, it's a good reminder to keep, to have that sort of window open after you have these sessions. I think with Zoom, for example, if we have to do these gatherings virtually, then it can be, you can really be like overly stuck on the time, you know, like it's from six mm-hmm. to seven and then that's mm-hmm. it. We're going to turn off yeah. Zoom. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, Ellen, your, your experience in doing Zoom now these past two years, but I'm usually kicking people out of breakout rooms because yes, because yes. they want to talk, right? Well, you know, it's like, forget Dr. Walker. We're not coming back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like kick them out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're desperate to talk, desperate to yeah, connect. Desperate important. for that connectivity. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Doug. I always learn something when I'm listening to you and I really appreciate it. I think our schools really needed to hear your messages today. So thank you so much for everything you do. And yeah, it's been great talking to you. Thanks, Ellen, for inviting me and uh, look forward to working alongside you in the future. Sounds good. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into our interview with Doug Walker. I hope you found it helpful. If you are looking for resources to support your school community as they face a crisis or in the aftermath of a crisis, I have put links in the podcast notes for you to check out. I'm well aware that the crisis in Ukraine is not the only crisis happening in the world. I know that there are schools in crisis in Myanmar, in Sri Lanka, for example, and we want to be supportive of you as well. And I think everything that Doug said today is absolutely relevant, regardless of the crisis that we are you know, focusing on in the moment. So please check out the notes and please don't feel like you need to go through this work alone. There are a lot of resources out there. We've put together a staff guide to help educators address these issues with children in a developmentally appropriate way and also providing strategies for you all to regulate your emotions that you can create a sense of safety for your students. So all of those links are in the liner notes. Please pass this podcast on to anyone that uh, you think could benefit. And please, 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 if you can go onto Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating, that would be great because it ends up helping us get into the hands of more educators. So the more feedback we get, the more visibility we have, which means that messages that Doug Walker and our other guests have will reach more folks. In the meantime, I am wishing all of you safety. I am wishing you all healing and I'm wishing you all compassion and love. Please take care of yourselves as you take care of other folks. I will see you at the next one. Take care, everybody.